California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know, there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers. You want to see the audience that you're reaching. And you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcast and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platforms you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support our show on Patreon. You can gain access to at least one exclusive episode per month, and there are currently more than 40 episodes that you can binge, so it's a pretty good deal, starting at just a dollar. And in addition to that, there are about eight premium episodes available for supporters at the $5 and above tiers. This week, I'd like to thank Michelle S., Natalie B., Heather H., Andre W., Mari A., Donna B., Elizabeth B., Margaret M., Raina, Diane M., Michelle M., Natalie H., Kelsey R., Juliet K., Ryan H., and Kara M. for joining Patreon. And I would also like to thank the following patrons for raising their pledges to the next tier. Rory C., Monique A., Tanya, Ellen C., Sarah S., Jim M., Lindsay L., M. A., and Sherry R., And if you would like to just help with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal, you can use our email at californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping California Dreaming going, so thank you. And before we get started, I must provide you with this warning. This episode contains details involving the shooting death of a teenager in school, and it may not be suitable for young audiences. However, the subject matter may spark a conversation for those of you who do have school-aged children. Listener discretion is advised, and I would like to thank Brad D. for recommending this case. Our story today evolves around the lives of two children, teenagers, who both had been dealt a pretty tough hand in life. They'd endured so much in their short years, much more than the average teen should ever be made to face. Tensions between the two boys had been brewing for months and would end up culminating in one final act of violence two days before Valentine's Day in 2008 in this 148th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Lawrence King. Lawrence King was born January 13, 1993. 
His biological mom, when she gave birth to him, was only 15 years old and struggling with a crack and alcohol addiction. And she relied on sex work in order to take care of Lawrence and his younger brother, who came along in 1995 when she was 17. Lawrence's father was not in the picture. At that point, his mom was unable to take care of her sons, and just before the birth of her second child, and I'm not clear if they were removed from her care or if she gave them up on her own, but just after she had her second son, they were both adopted by Greg and Don King. At some point during his childhood, Lawrence was diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and reactive attachment disorder meaning Lawrence was having difficulties bonding or developing close relationships with his parents. The behavioral issues ultimately led to Lawrence having been made to repeat the first grade. And I know we've had this discussion about grade levels here in the United States and how they're different in other countries. So in first grade, he would have been between six and seven years old. And within two years, when Lawrence made it to third grade, so he was about between eight and nine years old, Lawrence's classmates began bullying him because of his effeminacy, and by the time he turned 10, he openly came out as gay. At the age of 12, Lawrence began getting in trouble, however, and it really doesn't seem like it was a thing that warranted the involvement of law enforcement, but there are uh, conflicting reports as to what exactly he did, but I can only speculate. The one thing that I could really think of was that Lawrence's parents were at their wit's end with him, and they had had enough. But when he was 12, he apparently got in trouble for taking food from the refrigerator in the home in which he was living. And he was given uh, probation for vandalism and theft. Now, I also heard that he had vandalized a vehicle, but I'll talk more about that a little bit later on. Towards the end of 2007, when he was 14, Lawrence was removed from the care of his adoptive parents. He had been there for about 12 years and he was sent to live in a group home and treatment center called Casa Pacifica, located in Camarillo, California. Due to privacy laws, it hasn't exactly been made clear why Lawrence was taken from his adoptive home and put into the group home. However, Lawrence was known to have reported that his father, Greg, was physically abusive, and it's an allegation that he has vehemently denied. According to Lawrence's friends, he never opened up about why he was sent to live at Casa Pacifica because they could see that once he was there, he had a little bit of a difficult time talking with his friends about family. As a matter of fact, he would say so little about his family. And when his friends talked about theirs, they could see from the look on his face that it was a sensitive subject for him. Lawrence was kind of always on the sidelines with these types of conversations, feeling left out. He was removed from his adoptive home of 12 years in November. So this was leading up into the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, etc. And it would be only a couple months before the day our story took place, which would be on February 12, 2008. The Lawrence's friends did say that living there at the group home was okay. It was kind of fun. It had its moments, but it still wasn't exactly home. And they could see the sadness in his face and in his eyes. Some days he would just sit there and put his head down. Now, Casa Pacifica was meant to be a temporary situation for children while social workers work towards either family unification 
or an attempt to find extended family members that they can be placed with or to find foster homes. Lawrence had started attending school at E.O. Green Junior High School. Some reports have said that he was in 7th grade. Some have said he was in 8th grade. I do believe that he was in 8th grade. He would have turned 15 that January of 2008. So that would have made him one of the older kids since his birthday so uh, early on in the year. And he had been held back in 1st grade. So E.O. Green was not the junior high school that he was slated to attend But Lawrence had developed some pretty serious problems beginning in third grade, and his parents had him transferred out to a different school before he got to junior high school so he could try for a fresh start. And I'll get more into that transition later on in this episode. The school, it seemed, was slightly better for him, not necessarily in the terms of the bullying that he had been experiencing in the past, but rather he was able to befriend a group of girls who readily welcomed him into their little circle of friends. They were also tasked with keeping a close watch on what was going on with the children under their care at Casa Pacifica and what was going on at school, but the staff readily acknowledged that sometimes things happen and they just aren't made fully aware of it. Lawrence was still being taunted and ridiculed, and it seemed particularly harsh on the part of the other boys in his PE class. The bullying escalated in January of 2008 when Lawrence began wearing makeup and girls' clothing and accessories and high-heeled shoes. Sometimes he'd do his hair up like in sort of like a bouffant, he'd paint his fingernails, usually pink, and he'd dab on some glitter on his cheekbones. His brother, Rocky, who was two years younger than him, was also bullied and taunted due to the simple fact that they were brothers. Now, Lawrence's friends, when spoken to later on, have said that he had reached out to his teachers about the bullying, but some of his other friends have said that he resisted going to teachers because he was afraid it would only make things worse. And if I had to guess, I'd say it was probably a combination of both of them. I know that he had some teachers that were really trying to help him and support him in what he was going through. One of Lawrence's friends did say that he witnessed the taunting and these kids would shout anti-gay slurs at him and that it happened in every class throughout the day. And what a few of his friends said is that it's not that he went to the teachers to report the bullying, but rather the teachers knew what was going on and seemingly didn't really want to get involved. Whether or not that's true, we'll have to determine that a little bit later on. I find it unimaginable that teachers would have heard children shouting homophobic slurs up and down the hallways and in and out of classrooms and completely ignoring it. The superintendent of the school district has insisted that the staff had intervened, particularly after one incident that Lawrence was involved in with a classmate. And I'll tell you about that a little bit later as well. The staff reported that they were made aware of an altercation between the two boys and the staff stepped in to assist Lawrence as well as the other boy and the school was steadily working with and counseling both of them. But the superintendent was not able to get more specific than that, that they were getting counseling following that altercation between them. After Lawrence arrived at Casa Pacifica, he was able to find support through a youth group that was sponsored by the Ventura County Rainbow Alliance. There he was able to take advantage of social services and counseling specifically designed for young people within the gay community. 
The director of the Rainbow Alliance did say that Lawrence spoke openly at their meetings every week, but really didn't reveal too much in regards to the specifics of what he would talk about, but emphasized that Lawrence's life was really hard. He was living in a group shelter. He had no parents that he could talk to or confide in or be comforted by. And every day he'd have to get up and go to school knowing that his tormentors were waiting with an onslaught of name-calling and taunts. So when it came to the way that Lawrence dressed, several of his teachers believed it to be incredibly distracting, causing disruptions in class, and this would be in violation of their school's dress code. However, laws enacted in California prohibits discrimination based on gender, and this includes gender expression. So as much as the teachers may have felt Lawrence's manner of dress was distracting, he was very much within his rights to wear what he wanted to wear. And honestly, if the other students in class took issue with it and were acting up in class by taunting and making fun of Lawrence, to me, it seems like a teacher problem, not a Lawrence problem. I know middle school kids can be notoriously awful towards their peers. I mean, they could be relentless. But there is no way that these teachers should be allowing these sorts of antics to go on in their classroom. It's like you're the teacher. Take charge. Stand up for the child who is being bullied and come down hard on the children who are doing the bullying. Instead, in Lawrence's case, it seemed as though the teachers would rather place the blame on Lawrence for the disruptions that they were having in class and wanted to find a way to make him conform to his gender so that they didn't have to deal with it anymore. And I have to tell you, dreamers, it could not have been easy for Lawrence to have to get up every morning to get dressed in what he feels is right for him, knowing that he was going to be subjected to all kinds of ridicule, but he believed in himself enough and who he was and in his identity to not give in. Not only that, Lawrence eventually began pushing back, although it tends to cross the line as to what's appropriate and not appropriate, and we'll get into that as we go along. He did push back, he did start to stand up for himself, and he tried to give the bullies a taste of their own medicine. By December of 2007 and into January of 2008, when Lawrence would be getting bullied in PE or in the boys' locker room, which seems to be the major places where it was happening, Lawrence began flirting with the boys. The kids that were harassing him, he would tell them that he thought that they were really cute, or if he passed by any of them during lunch, he would ask if he could sit with them, or if he would pass any of them in the hallways between classes, he would say things like, I know you want me. And all of this was Lawrence's answers to the sustained and increasingly escalating aggressive bullying on the part of his male classmates. And there was one boy in particular whom Lawrence had several aggressive verbal confrontations with. And the friction between the two boys continued to escalate leading into February. On January 29, 2008, an email was sent out to the entire staff at E.O. Green Junior High School that came from the school's assistant principal, Sue Parsons. And in this email, this reaction to what was going on with Lawrence and his classmates would spark a debate. It read, in part, We have a student on campus who has chosen to express his sexuality by wearing makeup. It is his right to do so. Some kids are finding it amusing. Others are bothered by it. As long as it does not cause classroom disruptions, he is within his rights. 
We are asking you to talk to your students about being civil and non-judgmental. They don't have to like it, but they need to give him his space. We are also asking you to watch for possible problems. If you wish to talk further about it, please see me or Joy Epstein. And Epstein is one of the school's assistant principals as well. About a week and a half into February, Lawrence was continuing to dress to his preferences along with wearing makeup, and he began asking his friends to start calling him Letitia. And that seemed to be the direction that Lawrence was heading. It likely would not have been very much longer before he would begin identifying as a transgender female, but he would never have the chance. Some publications prefer to call him Lawrence, others Letitia, but most continue to refer to him as Lawrence and use his male pronouns because sadly Letitia was never really able to fully emerge. Out of Lawrence's short 15 years, Letitia only came to be for a little more than a week. One of Lawrence's most aggressive bullies was a classmate named Brandon McKinnerney. He was born January 24, 1994 in Ventura, California. He was a little more than a year younger than Lawrence, and his childhood was just as tumultuous as his parents, Kendra and William McKinnerney, had a relationship wrought with domestic violence and drug abuse. In 1993, Kendra filed a report with the Ventura Police Department that her husband took aim at her with a 45 caliber pistol and shot her in the arm. For that, he served 120 days in jail for discharging a firearm. Following that incident, the couple had gotten into a fight over Kendra making the accusation that William stole some of her older son's ADHD medications, claiming in several court documents that he was addicted to prescription drugs a fight escalated to the point where William nearly choked Kendra unconscious. That led to William spending 10 more days in jail with three years of probation. Then, for about six months between August of 2000 and February of 2001, William called Child Protective Services nearly half a dozen times with concerns about the health, safety, and well-being of his son Brandon, who was being cared for primarily by Kendra. But he said no action was ever taken on the part of CPS, though because of privacy, that could not be confirmed. That's just his word. In 2001, William and Kendra were both given restraining orders against one another. In the court documents, William, who worked as a finance manager at a recreational vehicle shop, claimed that his wife was completely consumed by drug addiction. Meth, cocaine, alcohol, you name it. He even said that there was an occasion when she tried to crash into him while he was driving with Brandon in his vehicle. William described Kenda's living situation as being in a drug house, a place where people randomly did drugs and then passed out in the front living room. He also claimed in his court filing that Kendra was physically abusive and that he had seen evidence that she had slapped and scratched Brandon. In 2003, Kendra was arrested and charged with driving while under the influence of drugs and subsequently ordered into rehab. From then on, Brandon went back and forth between his mom and his dad's house, with his dad eventually settling down not too far away from E.O. Green Junior High School. And it is known that Brandon's father did keep guns in the home. However, after 2003, it does not seem that there were any further incidents or reports of any issues between Kendra and William, 
even with the past contact with Child Protective Services. There did not appear to be anything going on in the home that would have warranted Brandon's removal. And as we well know, the threshold for removal of children from homes is very, very high because the goal is always family unification. Though some who have looked at this case feel as though because of the long history of abuse and domestic violence that Brandon should have been removed, sometimes the damage of being raised in an abusive and violent home That damage done to the children may not manifest itself until some years down the road. When a child sees violence in the home, they often go on to resort to violence when working through their own problems as they get older. According to Brandon's classmates at school, he was one of the tallest and strongest kids there. He may have been described as one of the popular kids, but his clique of friends consisted of very few specific individuals. And if you weren't a part of his circle, he was known to be somewhat rude and unfriendly. One of his classmates even called him a jerk. However, for the most part, he was described as being relatively mild-mannered and studious. He did well in school, and he did well playing sports. When he wasn't in school, Brandon spent his free time taking up martial arts classes, and he joined an educational and service youth program called the Young Marines. He seemed to be the type that thrived on structure and discipline settings. His martial arts instructor, Dana Charvet, has always said he was a dedicated and respectful pupil, but he did recall an occasion when Brandon came to him for advice about a problem that he was having at school. What is the best way to deal with a guy who was messing with him? That was as specific as Brandon got, and he didn't name names, and he didn't say what was going on, He just said it was a guy messing with him. Dana suggested that he talk to his dad or to his school principal. Whether or not Brandon took the advice, I don't know. And Brandon was one of the students who regularly ridiculed Lawrence. But eventually, in the weeks leading up to February 12, 2008, as I said, Lawrence began pushing back. With every name that Brandon called Lawrence, Lawrence answered back with a flirtatious sentiment. He would tell Brandon, you're cute. Can I sit with you? You know, things like that. And this ended up causing Brandon to be teased and taunted by his other classmates and teammates, telling him that he's gay too. Every time Lawrence would flirt with Brandon, Brandon would make some obscene statement or name calling in an attempt to dismiss him but it was only growing increasingly worse for Brandon. Brandon was so put off by Lawrence's effeminate demeanor, his wearing of women's clothing and high heels and makeup, it was bothering him deeply, a lot. And compounding everything, there were apparently rumors, extreme rumors about Brandon and Lawrence that were so off the wall that there is no way that any of it could be true. But the rumors were circulating nonetheless. On Monday, February 11th, 2008, at school, Brandon was on the basketball court in the middle of playing a game. Lawrence interrupted the game. He walked out onto the court, and in front of Brandon's entire basketball team, Lawrence asked Brandon to be his valentine. The basketball team erupted into laughter and jeers and continued to tease and poke fun at Brandon, telling him that him and Lawrence are going to have a gay baby too. 
On that same day, following lunch, Lawrence was walking down the hallway when he spotted Brandon. The boys passed each other, and Lawrence loudly said, Love you, baby. And later on that same day, several of the students reported witnessing Lawrence prancing around wearing a pair of high heel boots and makeup and marching back and forth in front of and around Brandon. At some point, one of the teachers noticed that Brandon was becoming visibly angry and aggravated at the ribbing that he was now getting from Lawrence and his own friends. His whole group of friends were sitting around laughing at him. Assistant Principal Joy Epstein could see that Brandon was highly upset, but all she did was wave a finger at him. And I'm under the impression that it was a gesture to just tell him to let it be. Because remember, Lawrence had the right to express himself as he pleased. The staff were told that in the email, just leave Lawrence alone. For the rest of the afternoon, Brandon continued to be taunted by his friends, which of course is continuing to aggravate him, and they wouldn't drop it. Eventually, Brandon began looking for some of his classmates asking them to help beat up Lawrence. But nobody was willing to help him do that. And at some point towards the end of that school day, Brandon told at least one classmate that he was going to kill Lawrence. But that classmate said that he didn't take what Brandon said seriously. They figured that he was just mad and blowing off steam. After Brandon's failed attempt to get anyone to help him attack Lawrence, he ended up telling one of Lawrence's friends, Make sure you say goodbye to him today because you're never going to see him again. And again, Brandon's statements were dismissed. On the morning of February 12, 2008, Lawrence went to school, but he did not go to school as his usual self. He ditched the heels and the makeup and his favorite accessories, and he opted to come to school dressed like the other boys. Regular sneakers, pants, a collared shirt, and a sweater. In addition to that, Lawrence's friends and some of the staff noticed that he seemed unwell. Either he was sick or something was troubling him. Lawrence had mentioned to one of the staff members that he had thrown up his breakfast, but apparently he was known to do that on purpose, obsessing over being thin. So, on top of everything else, he possibly had an eating disorder too. Lawrence also told another friend that he had trouble sleeping the night before, but it seemed like it was more than that to some of his friends. As they watched him make his way around campus that morning, Lawrence's friends sensed that something more than just a lack of sleep was going on with him there. He appeared to be anxious and uneasy, and he also seemed to be looking over his shoulder as he headed to first period. That would be his English class but they weren't going to be in the classroom that morning to work. They were all going to head over to the computer lab because they were typing up their reports on World War II. Lawrence gathered up his things, and along with the other students in his class, he made his way over to the lab and found a seat towards the middle of the classroom. Among the group was Brandon. He took his seat directly behind Lawrence. He told the teacher that he didn't need to work on his paper that his was already done. So he quietly picked up his history book and opened it to whatever page and began to read. At least, Brandon appeared to be reading. 
A student seated nearby later reported that it was clear that Brandon wasn't really reading. His eyes would be cast down looking at the page on his book, and then he'd lift his eyes and stare at Lawrence's back. The student watched as Brandon's eyes continually darted back and forth between the book and then Lawrence, and then the book, and then Lawrence. Approximately 30 minutes later, around 8.30 a.m., Brandon slowly and quietly rose from his seat. The teacher was busy helping another student with their paper. Everyone else seemed to be concentrating on their work. And as Brandon stood there, he brought out a 22 caliber handgun from his backpack that he had snuck onto campus with him somehow. He took aim at the back of Lawrence's head and fired one shot. The teacher stood up immediately and screamed, What the hell are you doing? Brandon fired the weapon a second time, again hitting Lawrence in the back of the head. He dropped the gun onto the floor of the classroom and quietly left. Brandon made it on foot a few blocks and was taken into custody less than 10 minutes after the shooting. Lawrence was rushed to St. John's Regional Medical Center in serious condition. He would never regain consciousness and was declared brain dead the following day, February 13, 2008. He was kept alive for another day so that his organs could be harvested and donated. Lawrence King passed away on February 14, 2008, at the age of 15. From here, dreamers, the subject matter is going to get a little touchy. So I'm going to try to see this story from all sides and to be fair and open-minded. Lawrence's death, some 10 years after the murder of Matthew Shepard, was to be the biggest anti-gay crime since then. And there are those who believe that Lawrence's death isn't as simple as it being an anti-gay hate crime. The landscape of tolerance and acceptance in California was going through some changes. Same-sex marriage had just been legalized. More and more television shows had gay characters in leading roles. The things that young children were seeing and experiencing were becoming more and more normalized, and it led Lawrence to feel free to openly express himself as he saw fit, where in the last couple decades it was still something that children tended to hide until they reached adulthood. And children were and are coming out at younger ages. And some feel the fact that Lawrence was so comfortable with being openly gay during his middle school years raises other issues that, at that age, they might not be fully aware of. They want to express themselves, but they aren't fully capable of knowing what exactly that actually means. And with the adults in their lives, their parents, their teachers, it can be uncomfortable for them to discuss or confront their child's sexuality with them, especially when they're so young. And the school was trying to walk a tightrope while trying to figure out what the best way was in dealing with a young man like Lawrence. The school is required to protect his rights. That was made clear in the email memo that I read to you earlier. But at what point are schools and parents supposed to step in when the behaviors that the child is exhibiting are improper and potentially detrimental? And some would want to point to the fact that Lawrence King himself was a problematic child. I'm not completely sure if I agree with this sentiment or not, possibly to an extent, because I certainly do not want to victim blame here, but he was being bullied. 
and it had been going on for quite some time leading up to his death. But when it came to Brandon, Lawrence figured out how to get under his skin. One article from back in 2008, about five months after the shooting in a Newsweek said, quote, He was a troubled child who flaunted his sexuality and wielded it like a weapon, and it was often his first line of defense. But his story sheds light on the difficulty of defining the limits of tolerance, as E.O. Green Junior High School found. Finding that balance presents an enormous challenge. We talked a little bit about Lawrence's early life, and undoubtedly he had a difficult upbringing. His mom addicted to drugs, his father absent from his life, and when he was finally adopted at the age of two by the Kings, certain details about the first two years of his life were not disclosed to them, such as that he was extremely malnourished. And we know that brain development is crucial in the first five years, and a huge part of that is a healthy diet. Lawrence soon developed a speech impediment, and he had difficulty learning how to read, which ultimately led him to having to repeat the first grade. His parents insisted he was a very sweet child, but began developing troubling behaviors from a very young age. His adoptive dad, Greg, told Newsweek, We couldn't take him to the grocery store without him shoplifting. We couldn't get him to clean up his room. We'd send him upstairs and he'd get a screwdriver and poke holes in the walls. Before long, Lawrence was taking medications to help deal with his diagnosis of ADHD and reactive attachment disorder. Even going back to the time that Lawrence was in third grade, the murmuring started amongst his peers regarding his sexuality. His principal recognized that he was effeminate, but he was also very confident about himself and his identity. Until finally one day when he was 10, one of Lawrence's closest friends at school asked him, are you gay? And Lawrence said, yeah, why? And his friend did not change how she felt about him. They were good friends and him being gay didn't matter here nor there. But when Lawrence began opening up to other students, most of them were not as accepting. That was about the time when the bullying really started to set in. He was called names and kids who used to play with him on the playground refused to interact with him anymore. Then, when Lawrence was in sixth grade, one of the girls in his class started passing around a burn book all about Lawrence. Throughout its pages, his bullies were invited to write whatever nasty things they wanted to say about Lawrence. They called it the Larry Book. And in it, they wrote about Lawrence being gay. And it not only said that he always liked to dress in drag, but he was also goth, and both of which were not true. And the book ended with these ominous words. I hate Larry King. I wish he was dead. The school principal eventually intercepted the book and immediately phoned his parents to tell them what she had discovered. The principal was in tears and told his parents, you have to step in to do something to protect Lawrence. His parents ended up pulling him out of that elementary school and had him placed in a different one, which would be in the same contour as E.O. Green Junior High School, where he would ultimately end up. The Kings had hoped that this would give Lawrence a clean slate and a fresh start. And as I had alluded to earlier, the environment at E.O. Green was slightly better. 
and Lawrence was able to make friends with a group of girls who were very open and accepting of him, much different than his experience back in his elementary school. But I guess maybe it's inevitable that the bullying slowly started to pick back up momentum again, and it mostly was centered in gym class with the boys and in the locker room. And then I mentioned before that Lawrence began wearing makeup and women's clothing and heels, and this led to the taunting to escalate even more. But according to Lawrence's friends, he did what he could to take it all in stride. The name-calling, the ridicule. It was okay, he would reassure his friends. Someday, he's going to be famous, and they're going to be sorry. Around the age of 12, Lawrence began getting in trouble. I mentioned previously that he was on probation for stealing food, but I had read another report that he was on probation for vandalizing a vehicle with a razor blade. He had been seeing a therapist, and the therapist opined that perhaps Lawrence was possibly on the autism spectrum. Now, his adopted father, Greg, he's sort of a contradiction, and I don't really quite get his father. The only thing that makes sense to me is perhaps he had gotten more than he had bargained for when he and his wife adopted Lawrence, as he continued to be a problematic child from the time that they adopted him until the time that he was removed from their home and placed into Costa Pacifica group home. And it kind of sounds like the two parents had no idea how to deal with Lawrence's unique issues. It had been reported that Lawrence told at least his dad at the age of 14 that he thought he was bisexual. His dad claims that it didn't matter to him that he just figured that these things would work themselves out and go away. However, the therapist told Lawrence's dad that this was just another attempt at getting attention and he doesn't understand what it meant to be gay. Obviously, I'm no therapist, but there is something about that whole statement that really gave me an uneasy feeling. That this had been going on for quite some time by then, for about four years since Lawrence first said that he was gay. I don't think four years of being openly gay and wearing women's clothing, shoes, and makeup should be simply written off as attention-seeking behavior. He was being bullied and ridiculed. It's hard to imagine that Lawrence would put himself through all of that if it was not genuinely how he felt about who he was and what his identity was defined as. Towards the end of 2007, Lawrence began telling his teachers that his dad was physically abusing him, and so with that, he was removed from the home and placed in Casa Pacifica. Greg had maintained that he never abused Lawrence. At Casa Pacifica, though, he did express to some friends that it wasn't the same as having a family, but he did enjoy the facility. It was kind of like going to camp. There were basketball courts and swimming pools and they all resided in various wooden cottages or cabins. Lawrence was driven to school every day, and it was during his time at Casa Pacifica that he began going to the gay youth group meetings. And for Christmas, each of the kids in the group were given a gift card to Target. Lawrence got one too, and he used his to buy himself a pair of brown stilettos. By January, Lawrence began wearing women's clothing on a regular basis, and he was pretty flamboyant about it. He got into a few verbal altercations with some girls at school. He accused one young girl of having breast augmentation surgery. Another girl told Lawrence that she hated his shoes, and he retorted, well, I hate your necklace. 
He began telling his mom on the phone pretty regularly that he wanted to undergo gender confirmation surgery. Eventually, Lawrence began telling some of his friends and his teachers that he wanted to start going by the name Letitia. And if the name seems to be traditionally African-American, what many people didn't know at the time about Lawrence was that he was half African-American. So he not only wanted to embrace his gender identity, but also his ethnic identity as well. Lawrence's teachers refused to call him Letitia. Eventually, he stopped trying, but he did ask his friends to refer to him as that. The school administration at EO Green had a difficult time figuring out what the best way to deal with Lawrence was. At the heart of the matter is Lawrence's right to express himself how he wants to, but at the same time, they need to prevent it from becoming problematic and disruptive. And it was disruptive on Lawrence's part as well as those who taunted him. The school could not stop him from wearing whatever clothes he wanted to wear. California laws protect those rights. But some believe that Lawrence pushed the envelope as far as he could. And I've mentioned already that some of the things he did in order to taunt those who taunted him. The mother of one student reported that Lawrence told her son that he looked hot as he was changing for gym class. It is troubling, no matter who it is, if your child is in school and another kid is telling your kid that he or she looks hot or being uncomfortably flirtatious with your child in gym class, in the locker room while you're changing. I mean, I wouldn't like it either. But we know that this still was Lawrence's go-to reaction to the ways that he was being treated and bullied by his classmates. Both are unacceptable, so what is the school to do? Lawrence was eventually transferred out of gym class, but it is believed that the school administrators did not truly have a grasp on how serious Lawrence's problems were with his male classmates. Transferring him out of gym class was a preemptive move because Lawrence had reported that the boys constantly stared at him in the locker room. Lawrence's various other teachers did not understand why the school was allowing him to manipulate everyone's time, taking away from the reason why everyone's there in the first place, which is to get educated. Several of his teachers strongly believed that because of his manner of dress, he was causing so much disruption that that in and of itself would be a dress code violation, as it prohibits the wearing of any articles of clothing that can be considered distracting. The first time Lawrence showed up for class wearing eyeliner and lipstick, his teacher demanded that he wash his makeup off. But then the following day, Lawrence showed up with even more makeup on his face, and he told the teacher the assistant principal, Ms. Epstein, said that he had the right to wear the makeup if he wanted to. Assistant Principal Joy Epstein and the way that she was handling Lawrence caused many teachers to grow angry and frustrated. And the more that she insisted that the teachers back off and allow Lawrence to exercise his right to self-expression, the more emboldened Lawrence became. He had Epstein's full support when it came to his clothing and makeup. Despite the fact that Epstein was in charge of the 7th grade class, at the time of Lawrence's death, he was in 8th grade, and she did form a unique bond with him. With her colleagues, Joy Epstein was openly gay, but most of the students were unaware. But she has said that there was really no reason why she began interacting with Lawrence other than that he would visit her office pretty regularly, and she kept much of what they talked about in confidence. 
though some of what he may have confided in her about would come out later on. And the teachers at the school strongly believed that Joy Epstein not only encouraged Lawrence's ostentatious behavior, but also chose to look the other way when the problems between Lawrence and Brandon were escalating. Brandon's attorney, a man named William Quest, referred to Epstein as a lesbian vice principal with a political agenda. Lawrence's father would agree with that assessment, that she allowed her role as vice principal to overlap into areas that she should have stayed out of, but failed to do so because she was too busy pushing her own gay rights agenda. The staff at EO Green have asserted that they have tried to assist Lawrence in exploring his identity, but he too taunted and teased the boys in the hallways, in gym class, in the classroom, and in the cafeteria. When he was questioned as to why he was trying to push their buttons, Lawrence said it was because it was fun to see them squirm. But when it came to Brandon, there were a whole other set of issues going on there, and one of them being the fact that Lawrence really liked Brandon a lot. Students recall Lawrence purposely walking really close to Brandon, and around campus, he would often be caught just staring at him. He began telling other students that he and Brandon did get together. He told the other students that he and Brandon had dated in the past, but they broke up. And Lawrence also levied a threat. He demanded that Brandon begin treating him nicer, or else he was going to tell the entire school about their relationship. Brandon's attorney insisted that there was never any sort of relationship between Brandon and Lawrence, and if nothing else, it was yet another attempt on Lawrence's part to garner more attention for himself by making up stories and telling lies. I talked earlier about Brandon's tumultuous upbringing and how things sort of settled down a bit when he went to go live with his dad after his mom went into rehab, and he seemed to be doing well in school generally. But by the time he got to eighth grade, his father had taken a job that had required a 120-mile or 193-kilometer round-trip commute. So dad was spending a great deal of time away from home and at work, and Brandon was left to his own devices. He began hanging out with a group of kids that were sort of troublemakers, and he became disinterested in school, despite having generally been a bright kid. His interests dwindled pretty much across the board with the exception of anything that had to do with Adolf Hitler and the cabinet of the Third Reich and the subsequent Nuremberg trials and military tribunals. Now, Brandon's dad said that his son did have this fascination with World War II, but, you know, his main thing was Hitler and the Third Reich and the trials. And it's he says it's nothing concerning or out of the ordinary, according to dad, but... I don't know, it feels a little white supremacy to me, but we'll talk more about that later on. Towards the end of the first semester that school year, Brandon's grades were steadily falling, having dropped from a 3.3 GPA to a 1.9. This led to Brandon being removed from his English honors class and transferred into the English class that Lawrence was in. And Lawrence's grades were tumbling as well. He had gone from a 1.71 GPA in November to a dismal 1.0, which is a D average, a low D. According to his dad, Lawrence was too busy playing dress up and seeking attention for himself to really care about school anymore. And honestly, Lawrence was a really big hit with the girls. He was very popular. 
The girls knew that when the school day was set to start that Lawrence was going to show up in one of his heavily accessorized outfits, working hard to keep up his balance in those stilettos. He was just fabulous at school. Girls would take pics of him and he'd be the topic of discussion all day long. It was indeed distracting for everyone in school. And it was just a couple weeks before Lawrence was killed when the vice principal had sent that email telling other staff members that the students were free to express themselves whether they liked it or not. Now, while the superintendent has been clear that there were no official complaints made about Lawrence, some of the school staff attempted to protest what was going on with him, formally and in writing. And one of those who protested was the teacher that forced Lawrence to remove his makeup. A number of boys in her class had come to her with complaints about Lawrence, taunting them in the hallways, saying things like, you look hot, or I know you want me. And this, in turn, was causing their friends to start calling them gay. The teacher went to the school administration in order to make a formal complaint, at which point Joy Epstein said that she would handle it. When the teacher told Epstein that it was in regards to Lawrence King, she was told that there was nothing that they could do. However, Epstein vehemently denies that this ever took place. A few days later, another teacher reported that she too went to file a complaint about Lawrence with the principal of the school, Joel Lovestead, expressing her concerns about Lawrence and felt as though that he was jeopardizing his own safety by wearing stiletto heels in school every day, which he did not seem to be very steady walking in. But all the principal could say was that they have been told in no uncertain terms that they are not to intervene in any way with Lawrence's self-expression. And another complaint was said to have come from Lawrence's brother himself, Rocky, who was 12 years old at the time. He was also a student at E.O. Green Junior High School, and he complained to numerous school administrators, including Vice Principal Epstein, telling them that he wanted the school to stop his brother from dressing like a girl that the very first time Lawrence wore pink high heel boots to school in January, the students began teasing him and telling him that his brother is gay, so he must be gay too. Several of the teachers at the school have insisted that they wanted to support Lawrence and his rights to self-expression. And they tried to, but in some ways they really didn't know how. Until Lawrence's murder happened, there was very little discussion about the LBGTQ issues there simply was no LBGTQ community in their area of Oxnard, California. So the teachers and the administration were essentially told that they were to let Lawrence be, he was within his rights, do not intervene, so they didn't. And all the while, the tension between Brandon and Lawrence was intensifying. For Lawrence, it was a crush. That became very clear a couple days before Valentine's Day, when he made that faithful march out onto the basketball court and asked Brandon to be his valentine. That had stemmed from a game that Lawrence was playing with a group of his girlfriends that day. It was kind of like a daring game. They took turns. What they had to do was go up to the boy that they were crushing on and ask him to be their valentine. And Lawrence chose Brandon. And after he did that, Brandon was hit with an onslaught of ridicule from his teammates that pushed Brandon over the edge that day. By lunchtime, he was telling people to say goodbye to Lawrence. Unfortunately, nobody took Brandon's threat seriously. So nobody warned Lawrence, and nobody warned the school. 
If you remember earlier, I mentioned that the day of the shooting, Lawrence had arrived in school, notably dressed way down. His hair was tame. He had no makeup on. He was wearing typical guy's clothing, sneakers instead of heels. It has been said that there had been a heated confrontation between Brandon and Lawrence the day before following the Valentine incident. Several students as well as some teachers said that they heard the two had gotten into a fight, but it seemed that nobody actually witnessed it. When Lawrence was getting ready to head to school from Casa Pacifica, one of the staff members there noticed that he was dressed down and inquired as to what was wrong, and all Lawrence would say was that he's had enough. His friends at school asked him also about why he wasn't looking like his usual fabulous self, and he made up some excuses about running out of makeup and that he couldn't wear his heels because he had blisters. The makeup wasn't true, but the blisters were. As Lawrence was headed from the lab to his English class the morning of the shooting, he walked with his teacher, Miss Boldrin. She had been very protective of Lawrence, and she did what she could to provide him the support that he needed. She'd even gifted him a green evening gown that had belonged to her daughter when he was being placed in Casa Pacifica because she knew that he was going through a really rough time. He took it to the bathroom that day and tried it on and said this is what he was going to wear to his 8th grade graduation. Mrs. Bolin even took a picture of him when she gave him the dress that day. When they got to the computer lab, Lawrence sat down at one of the computers in the middle of the class. A couple of minutes later, he was paged to come see his counselor in the office. His counselor had to let him know that his grades were slipping, and if things didn't turn around, he wasn't going to be able to graduate from 8th grade. After the meeting, Lawrence headed back to the computer lab and sat down. On his paper in front of him, he wrote his name. Letitia King. Within moments, nearly the entire school heard the sound of two gunshots. The question that was asked of many of the teachers and administrators at the time was, could this have been prevented? Yeah, there are a number of things that could have happened differently that could have prevented this. And of course, one of the biggest issues is, Why did 14-year-old Brandon have access to a loaded firearm, and how was he able to smuggle it to the school? And what about counseling the students and teachers? What kind of counseling they may have been receiving or needed to receive when it came to dealing with students like Lawrence and Brandon? Were the resources adequate enough? And what to do when students are pushing each other beyond certain boundaries, beyond limitations, where they're beginning to put themselves and others in jeopardy. Did the school handle this properly? How could it have been handled differently? Where does protecting rights end and pushing boundaries that shouldn't be crossed begin? Nobody would ever sit here and blame Lawrence King for his own murder. Nothing, absolutely nothing, justifies that. But the sympathy for Brandon was very real and present at the time. Teachers and students knew that Brandon participated in the bullying of Lawrence King. And Lawrence found a way to retaliate, to push back. It caused Brandon a great deal of embarrassment 
His friends were taunting him incessantly whenever Lawrence would say things or act flirtatious. And it's been said several times that Lawrence had developed a crush on Brandon. Despite Brandon bullying him and being mean to him, Lawrence had figured out a way to really get to him and kept going until Brandon just became so angry he resorted to violence. Others have said that Lawrence was motivated by all the attention that he was getting. Whether it was negative or positive, he seemed to want it either way. As for Lawrence's adoptive father, Greg, he didn't feel that the issue had anything to do with whether or not Lawrence was straight or gay, as he's always remained unconvinced that Lawrence was gay. But the issues were the limitations that Lawrence was pushing to a point that he was putting himself and his peers in danger. A year after Lawrence's murder, a vigil was held in his memory to bring attention to the harassment of the LBGTQ individuals in the community. This did not sit well with Lawrence's father, and he did not mince words. He felt as though his son was sexually harassing Brandon and doesn't feel that Lawrence is the face of gay rights issues as he continued to believe that his son was not gay. Several teachers, as well as Lawrence's father, felt as though Vice Principal Joy Epstein not only protected Lawrence's right to self-expression, but further encouraged him to be as flamboyant as he wanted to be. As they saw this as a way for Epstein to pursue her own personal agenda and further her own career. Sometime later, Epstein was given a promotion as principal of another school, and Lawrence's dad saw it as another blow to their family. But one of the biggest questions that continued to linger, and I haven't really come to a solid answer on this myself, dreamers, did the school do enough? Should the school have recognized the growing animosity between Brandon and Lawrence and did something more to intervene? Ask any of the teachers and they'd be the first to tell you their hands were tied. They knew the tension was growing, but there was nothing that they could do to try and neutralize the situation. They were sent that memo and explicitly told to leave Lawrence alone. Both boys had come from highly dysfunctional backgrounds, with Brandon feeling as though he was being sexually harassed by Lawrence and Lawrence's desire to wear women's clothing, shoes, and makeup while flirting with the boys at school. Lawrence's mom has said that she went to the school and asked them to stop him from doing the things that he was doing, which she believed was for attention, but she was told that they could not intervene. She insisted that the school should have stepped in and enforced their dress codes, specifically the dress codes that outline what constitutes articles of clothing that are a distraction and gain control of Lawrence's behaviors. I'm telling you, dreamers, honestly, I'm not sure where I'm at with this at the moment. I'm kind of conflicted about how I feel in this particular case. But my first inclination is that there should have been a more aggressive intervention when it came to the bullying of any kind. Both of these boys needed a serious talking to by professional counselors. The school has said that they did not have the resources for that kind of counseling. But when the cost ultimately becomes one young boy being shot to death and another young boy facing decades in prison, saying there are no resources really doesn't cut it. So the pretrial stuff in this case took more than three years to get through. 
First, they wanted a change of venue. Then there had to be a hearing on whether or not Brandon was going to be tried as an adult. Then there was a tremendous amount of support and a petition asking for him to be tried as a juvenile. In August of 2008, Brandon entered a plea of not guilty on the charges of first-degree murder and this having been a hate crime. Then Brandon had some issues with his attorney, his family wanted his public defender fired, and they wanted him to be defended by a law firm called the United Defense Group. But the public defender's office filed a motion to strike that down because they did not feel that the law firm had what was in the best interest of Brandon in mind in taking on this case. However, in October, Brandon was allowed to fire his public defender, and he did hire the defense group. And at the end of 2008, Brandon underwent his psychiatric evaluations, and it was determined that he was fit for trial. Getting into 2009, there were a series of motions and appeals and postponements, when suddenly in March of 2009, Brandon's father died as a result of a head injury sustained in a fall at his home. Brandon was given permission to leave the juvenile detention center to attend his father's funeral. In August of 2008, Brandon was arraigned and he again entered a plea of not guilty and a trial date was set for December of 2009. So this is taking us just two months shy of the second anniversary of Lawrence's murder. In September of 2009, prosecutors wanted to add the charge of lying in wait, which would have automatically elevated Brandon's case to the adult court. So there was going to be another series of appeals and motions and postponements and whatnot to follow. There was yet another postponement in January of 2010, taking the pretrial motions into May of that year, which at that point, the trial date was set for July of 2010, but there was yet another postponement. A hearing was scheduled all the way into the next year of April of 2011 to determine if Brandon's attorney was ready to go to trial. The postponements were as a result of Brandon's attorney wanting the DA to recuse himself, he wanted a change of venue, and he wanted more time to prepare for trial. Then finally, after numerous delays, Brandon's trial began on July 5th, 2011, three and a half years after Lawrence's killing. By this time, Brandon was 17. Brandon had been portrayed by the prosecutors as one of the popular kids in school who enjoyed studying martial arts, but also had a fascination with guns. Brandon was also portrayed as a white supremacist, and I kind of gathered that back when I brought it up earlier, how he was fascinated with World War II and Adolf Hitler and the Nuremberg trials, though his dad had said it wasn't an inappropriate fascination, whatever that means, which to me, it's kind of a sign that there might just be a little bit of white supremacy in their home there, but I don't know. Who's to say? Can you be fascinated with Hitler and not be a white supremacist? I guess it's possible. I don't know. While the prosecutor stated that Lawrence was a small kid who had endured a tremendous amount of bullying because he wore high heels and women's clothing and jewelry and accessories and makeup, Brandon's attorney made it clear that Lawrence had been the aggressor, often making sexual remarks and advances towards him, which provoked him and set these boys on a collision course, which resulted in this. Some of the students testified that many of them at the school poked fun at Lawrence. They used homophobic slurs when talking about him. Some of the students said that they did not hear Lawrence making inappropriate sexual remarks towards Brandon, while others said it was just like joking or messing around. 
Joy Epstein testified that after talking to the staff at the school, they decided that Lawrence's right to wear what he wanted to wear was protected by the California Constitution and that all the things that Lawrence wore were not in violation of their district dress code. One of the teachers testified that students had complained that Lawrence would follow them into the bathroom, like purposely seek them out and follow them, and she felt that this crossed the line into sexual harassment. But when she brought this up to Epstein, she was told that she could not do anything about it. And in one poignant moment in court, Lawrence's English teacher, the one I mentioned earlier, the one whose class he last sat in, Mrs. Boldrin, she told the court that she would talk to Lawrence and tell him that if he wanted to avoid getting all of this negative attention, he should consider wearing things that didn't attract so much attention. She also shared how she understood that he was exploring his identity. So she gifted him that green evening gown that had belonged to her daughter. The moment brought several people in the courtroom to tears when she shared with the court the picture that she had taken of Lawrence holding up the dress. However, Lawrence's father was incensed at the moment. He abruptly stood up along with his family and stormed out of the courtroom And as he did, Lawrence's mom turned to Ms. Boldrin's 13-year-old child and shouted profanities at her. So this kind of gives us a bit of an insight as to what may have been going on with Lawrence when he was removed from his adoptive home and placed at Casa Pacifica. Neither of his parents were very open or accepting of Lawrence. And Lawrence never really told anyone. He just said that his dad was physically abusing him. In the end, the defense insisted that because the school was allowing Lawrence to do and wear whatever he wanted unimpeded, that it gave Lawrence the green light to sexually harass his male classmates, and he specifically targeted Brandon. The first trial ended with a hung jury, forcing the judge to declare a mistrial, the split being seven for voluntary manslaughter and five for either first-degree or second-degree murder. Several of the jurors later said that they felt that Lawrence had been bullying Brandon and his attorneys should have used the gay panic defense in presenting their case. They would have seen that as Brandon having no other way out than to do what he did. And by the way, the gay panic defense strategy is banned in California as of 2014. The second trial was set to begin October 5th, 2011. And the second time around, the prosecution decided to drop the hate crime charge. However, there would be no second trial, as Brandon instead entered a guilty plea to the charges of second-degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, and the use of a firearm. Today, Brandon is 26 years old. He's been in jail for 12 years. He is currently housed at the California Correctional Center in Susanville, California. And he was not given credit for time served prior to his conviction or for good behavior. So for all those years from the age of 14 to 17, as he waded through all that pretrial junk, he was not given credit for those years. He will be eligible for parole in December of 2025 when he's 31. As for the school and the others in its district... Well, let me say this. One of the reasons why the first jury was unable to reach a verdict was because of the decision for the schools to not have intervened when the problems arose between Brandon and Lawrence. 
The Port Wainimi School District stated that there were no plans to change any of their policies in the wake of the school shooting. The superintendent has said policy changes were unnecessary because the school acted appropriately, and he defended the memo that was sent out to the staff two weeks before the shooting that essentially said that Lawrence was within his rights. You don't have to like it, but you have to let him be. The company that provided insurance coverage for the district launched their investigation and found that no laws were broken, nor were any policies or procedures disregarded. Lawrence's parents were awarded $250,000 from the school's insurance carrier, and they were made to admit to no wrongdoing on their part. What made Brandon and Lawrence's situation more unique than most school policy issues is that it involved overlapping issues that can pull what the right thing to do is in such a way that it becomes somewhat warped and more difficult to apply. With these boys, we had issues concerning school safety, bullying, taunting, sexual harassment, and the rights of every student to explore their identity. Sometimes they clash, and coming to a place that satisfies everyone is nearly impossible. The state of California can offer guidance, but ultimately it comes down to each individual school board to know when to step in and deal with issues that have these multiple layers to them. As for Lawrence's parents, not the most likable pair in this story. They believed that the school allowed for the situation between Brandon and Lawrence to rage out of control. Not only did they fail to step in, they actively encouraged what they called Lawrence's fatal behavior. They should have advised him to tone it down in his manner of dress, or they should have suspended either Brandon or Lawrence or both of them. I don't necessarily agree with everything Lawrence's mom and dad have said throughout, but here's the thing with that. Let's say hypothetically that the school did decide to step in with Lawrence. The school would not have been able to tell him what to wear or what not to wear, but the school could have stepped in and said, okay, we'll wait. You're making all of these flirtatious remarks and whatnot to the boys in your class. It's inappropriate behavior and it needs to stop or you're going to be suspended. Because how Lawrence is dressed is separate than how he's behaving. But in this case, the school seemed to feel that the two were intertwined which they are to an extent, but his behavior certainly needed to be addressed, as did Brandon's. Though what if the school were to call in Lawrence's parents and tell them that they've counseled Lawrence about his inappropriate behavior and he's going to be suspended for a week? Would his mom and dad have been receptive to that? As they've repeatedly said that the school didn't do anything at all. But I could see a very strong reaction coming from both his mom and his dad And it remains along the same lines as denying that Lawrence was gay, which is what they'd been doing both before his death and after. So if the school said, hey, your boy is sexually harassing other boys in the class, I think his parents would have flew off the handle. So no, when they say that the school should have suspended Lawrence, it's easy to say that when it's too late. But as I said earlier, both Lawrence and Brandon needed to be talked to, both of them, about respect, tolerance, 
boundaries, acceptable behavior. Our country is in such an upheaval right now as it is. And on so much of a grander scale than two teenage boys at a middle school in California. But if we were to somehow be able to take any one of those lessons that should have been learned from Brandon and Lawrence and applied it to life today, things could have been different. Things could be different. Yet we still haven't figured it out yet. And that will bring this 148th episode of California Dreaming to a close. Please come over to the Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It is there we discuss the cases that we cover. We share our thoughts and opinions, not only about our show, but any other podcasts that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched, books that you've read, as well as current news stories. We post about our pets. We like all those funny memes. Please come over and share. You can also go to the show's Facebook page and like that page and leave a review or a recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at California Pod and Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to. With an amazing roster of shows with content including true crime, history, sports, entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. It is there that you will find the links to all of our podcasts and all of our episodes, as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And I'd like to thank you again so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams.